This evening we're going to look at the persistent widow, Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through to 8. The parable that we're looking at this evening is designed to show us that even if a wicked and uncaring judge finally caves in to a persistent widow's pleas for justice against someone who has wronged her in some way, we're not told how, how much more will a loving Heavenly Father vindicate those who cry out to him in prayer, people who are eternally loved by him and who are redeemed in the blood of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 there in Luke chapter 18. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. It's clearly stated there in verse 1 that Jesus spoke this parable in order to show them that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Likewise, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be careful or be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. For some of us, that means doing a lot of praying, doesn't it? If we're to be anxious or careful about nothing, but to let our requests be made known unto God. Certainly that means a lot of praying for me, And that's precisely what all of us ought to be doing, a lot of praying. As the Apostle said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. What else, what what did he say elsewhere, back in Philippians? Oh no, that was rejoicing in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. So we're to rejoice always and we're to pray without ceasing. That almost seems impossible, doesn't it? How can you rejoice always with all the stuff that's probably going on, on in your life, going on in my life? How do you continually rejoice? How do you pray without ceasing as well? Well, because that is how, that's how God has made us. That is how God has made each one of us. We can, we must rejoice in all situations and certainly God has made us to have communion with him all the time. Meditating upon his word day and night. Before we go any further with this parable, it's as well to be clear about whom Jesus was speaking to when he said these words. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. You may have guessed that, and that's given to us. Just look at chapter 17 and verse 22. And he and he said unto the disciples, the day will come, and so on. So he is speaking to his disciples there. And saying that men ought always to pray and not to faint. It's written in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. So God hears the prayers of some, 
but not everyone. What that means is that if you're not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified through faith in his finished work of redemption, if Jesus is not your saviour from sin, then you cannot expect God to hear your cry. That would be so unreasonable to expect God to hear you in times of trouble. What you can expect, however, is judgment and damnation for rejecting the Son of God. Therefore, if you have not already done so, you really do need to be reconciled to God through faith in his Son. You must cry out to God. This is the first thing you do. The first meaningful prayer ever, perhaps, for you, if you haven't done so already. You you must. It's not just a good idea, but you must cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness of sins. That is a prayer that God will most certainly hear. And it will open up a direct line to heaven. And from then on, you can pray to God without ceasing. And you're praying to the God of your salvation and a loving Heavenly Father. But first and foremost, the prayer that counts is that prayer seeking God's forgiveness, seeking mercy from God for your rebellion against him. Looking at verses 1 and 2 together here. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. In verse 2 we are introduced to the judge, and we are told that he feared not God. How ironic that is, that someone who might be reasonably expected to abound in wisdom... Feared not God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul said to the Christians, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Jesus is our wisdom from God, Christians. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's a mouthful there, isn't it? Let me just read it to you again. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, if you belong to Jesus, he is your wisdom. And when you look at that verse, you you would have to conclude, well, Jesus isn't just my wisdom. He is my everything. He really is. But we're, we're focusing on the wisdom tonight and, and the wisdom that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it is written in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As such, a babe in Christ, someone who is newly converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus for just a day, shall we say, some is someone who truly fears God. A brand new Christian who fears God would have more wisdom than that judge who feared not God. 
Also in verse 2 we read that the judge neither regarded man. In other words, he didn't care about people. And it seems amazing that a judge would have no regard for men, no interest in people. You would expect a judge to care about people, but then, having said that, if someone doesn't fear God, why would you expect that person to care less about people? The two go together there, don't they really? No fear of God, couldn't care less about people. Yep, they do go together, they really do. Looking at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. In the Bible, widows along with children are often presented as those for whom God has a very special concern. For example, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, God said, Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3, it is written, Honour widows, that are widows indeed. And in James chapter 1 and verse 27, it is written, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from this world. Clearly God does have a concern for widows. How interesting, isn't it, that this judge who feared not God had no concern for a widow who came to him with seeking justice against her adversary. As such, it just goes to show how ungodly he was. How wicked he was. However, before we get too pious and before we get too indignant against that nasty judge, there is at least some of that man in each one of us here. Because the two great commandments of God are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Clearly, the judge was guilty of breaking that great commandment. He didn't love God. He had no fear of God. That is the first, the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. What did we read about him? He neither regarded man. So that wicked judge... He contravened the two great commandments to love God with his whole being, to love his neighbour as his self. Those two great commandments, they encompass all of God's commandments. God's laws are all about love. Love for him, love for one another. And we're all guilty of breaking those commandments. Each one of us in here, if we weren't, Jesus need never have come into this world to lay down his life on a cross. Jesus came into the world, he fulfilled God's laws, Jesus demonstrated his great love for God 
and his love for his neighbour. He fulfilled the law, even unto the death of the cross, where he died in the place of those who so richly deserve to die. People who trust in him for forgiveness. But we are all guilty. Let's have a look at verses 4 through to 8. And he would not for a, he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. In verses 4 and 5, the wicked and uncaring judge only saw to it that the widow received justice against her adversary because she was wearing him down, she was wearing him out with her persistence. And then that is contrasted with verses 6 through to 8 with God who avenges his own elect. In other words, he avenges his chosen ones who day and night cry out to him in prayer. We need to understand something about the doctrine of election there. We need to understand something. Look at verse 7 again. And shall not God avenge his own elect which cry out to him day and night? though he bear long with them. We don't really understand that verse if we don't understand what the word elect means and if we don't understand the doctrine of election. So we really need to be clear in our minds what that means so that we can understand not just the verse but the parable. Every one of us is born into the world with a rebellious and sinful nature. Not just that wicked judge there, every single one of us. We are by nature the children of wrath, as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 puts it. As I have already said, to some degree, we are all like that nasty judge in that we fear not God, Neither do we really care about anyone outside our own little circle, our own little bubble. All of us can so easily, so easily display that same selfishness and coldness towards others. It is a display that exposes hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Even so, and amazingly, before the foundation of the world, God chose people to be called out in the fullness of time from all the other hell-deserving sinners and to be his beloved children. As it is so plainly and so clearly written concerning the elect of God in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Speaking of the elect of God. Tragically, the doctrine of election is often watered down or rejected outright by many within the visible church. I can only imagine that they have not been taught or they just have not grasped the reality of just how utterly depraved the unregenerate or unborn again person is. There is so much in the Bible to tell us just how wicked people are by sinful human nature. Jesus, he said, from the heart proceeds murders, adulteries, evil thoughts, blasphemies, and so on. This is what pours out of the unregenerate heart. And we can trace that back to the Garden of Eden. When sin came into the world by one man, and with sin came death, and death has come upon all of us because of sin. King David, he recognised that he was shapen in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him. You can read that in Psalm 51. And what David said about himself applies to each one of us. We needn't think King David was any more wicked than the wicked judge any more wicked than any one of us in here. And so, by sinful human nature, the reality is, because of our sinful human nature rather, if God chose no one for salvation... Not one person would seek God and not one person would be saved from his sins. Not one. There are those who accept, I'm saying those, I'm talking about Christians here. There are those who accept the doctrine of election, but it certainly is not a biblical one. They say something along the lines of, in eternity, God looked along the corridor of time and those he saw who would believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, he chose them. What those people fail to grasp is that if God really did look along the corridor of time, as they put it, God would find not one single person who would, of his own will, choose Jesus. Not one. God would find no one to, to, to choose as his elect because that person would make a decision for Christ. Not one. Also, there are those who object outright to the doctrine of election and they reject it completely. Again, I'm talking about professing Christians. They say something like, it doesn't seem right. Oh, it's not fair that God should choose some and not others to be saved and to have everlasting life. How unfair that would be. The Apostle Paul answered that objection by asking the question, Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? And when you study that verse, unless I'm reading it wrong, 
what you would have to conclude from that, not only does God elect, but he reprobates. Let me read it to you again. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? God is sovereign. And what that's basically saying is God does what God wants to do. And who are we to wave our fists towards heaven and stamp our feet and say it's not fair? To all who moan and oppose the truth that God has, uh, object to this truth that God has every right to choose people to be his children, beloved and precious in his sight. Let me quote to you what Spurgeon said, or what he asked. Is there any of you who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is, says someone. I do. Then God has elected you. But another says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? That's that's, um, what Spurgeon says. But at the end of the day, Romans chapter 9 says it all. Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour. We see in verse 7 that God avenges his own elect which cry out to him. And there are many examples of this in the Bible. In Psalm 18 and verse 6, King David said, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. On that occasion, God delivered King David from the hand of his enemies. The fact of the matter is that God can and he does deliver his elect from various calamities according to his good pleasure. But we needn't expect that to be the case. God is not a genie in a bottle. We don't just call on him in times of trouble and... Expect him to get us out of here. Get us out of the uh, trouble that we're in. The Son of God is elect in that he was chosen by his Father to come down from heaven as the Christ and to save his people from their sins. The night before Jesus carried their sins and took them away in his own, in his own body, he prayed to his Father, In anguish and sweating great drops of blood, Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ did not relish the idea of being nailed to that cross as sin bearer. He is the holy, the sinless one. Certainly that prayer reached heaven, but even so, in accordance with his Father's will, the very next day, 
Jesus was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. It is to be expected that if you are a child of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, that you will suffer persecution, perhaps even unto death, instead of being whisked away out of the fiery furnace or out of the jaws of a lion. And when that happens, you are to rejoice. You really are. Rejoice. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before (coughs) you. Even so, dear Christian, we have it written in God's infallible word that he will avenge his elect. We see that in verse 8, don't we? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Or in verse 7, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? God bearing long with his elect. I wonder what that means. After a Christian lifetime of crying out to God with heaviness of heart to your heavenly Father, asking for forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, as you continue to do the things that you shouldn't be doing, and with God bearing long with you, you will finally be delivered from the presence of sin. You will finally enter into the presence of your great God and Saviour. Jesus Christ. We have God's promise on that. Finally, verse 8 finishes with a question from Jesus. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? In a sense, the answer must surely be, of course he will. If you understand anything about election And when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again, one thing we can be sure of, when Jesus does return, in that final generation of the world's population, there will be the elect of God. I don't know how many, none of us knows. But the Lord Jesus Christ delays until the very last elect person is called. And then Jesus will come again. So in a sense, yes, there will be faith on the earth when Jesus comes again. His chosen ones will be there. And he will gather them up to be with him. And they will be transformed and be made like unto him. Therefore, the faith spoken of in verse 8, is not that saving faith as such. It's the kind of faith that we've been considering in this parable. 
It's the faith of the elect of God. Those who have a real saving faith in Jesus and a faith that in which they cry out to their heavenly father in their affliction. And in a sense, the two faiths go together and they are really one faith. Having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you ought to be someone who cries out to God in your affliction. Pray and not faint. It doesn't make sense that you would have faith in Jesus as your saviour and then that would be it until such time you go to be with him. It's certainly not me and I don't imagine it's anyone in here who has a saving relationship with Jesus. I trust you are people who can relate to these verses here crying out to your God and saviour, Jesus Christ. For the various situations, the various troubles that you find yourself in, but most of all, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but most of all, you cry out for deliverance from the body of this death. As you lament what a wretched person you are, a sinner saved by grace, and you thank God that you have indeed been chosen from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Chosen to be holy and without blame in his sight, in love. And you think, I'm no different to anyone else. Indeed, I'm the chief of sinners. That's what Paul said, the great apostle, the chief of sinners. He meant it. He really meant it. If the Lord Jesus Christ was to come again today, would he find you as someone who is trusting in him for salvation and crying out to your heavenly father because of some kind of Christian persecution that you are experiencing? And most of all, perhaps, because you earnestly desire to be once and for all delivered from the power, the presence of sin, that sin that so easily ensnares you, even after being a Christian for so many years. May we be encouraged by the words of this parable here. We see that judge, that wicked judge who feared not God, didn't care for people, didn't care for that widow, and still he gave in and he listened to her and she got what it is she came for. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure that your heavenly Father, he will hear your prayers. Though he bears long with you, and your prayers will be speedily answered. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Will you be ready in that day? Amen. <laughs>